Our scripture reference for today is John 17, 3. This is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. This is eternal life. How many of you want eternal life? That you may know, or that they may know you. That's not an intellectual knowledge. This word for know is an intimate knowledge. Eternal life is to have intimate knowledge of God. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I remember years ago, it was right before we moved to 3ABN, we went to England, and I was doing some rather large events, but while we were there, and we had like a week in between, a pastor came and said, would you come do a revival series at my church? And I said, sure. So we planned a five-night revival series, and the pastor and the associate pastor took J.D. and I out to dinner, and I said, what does your church need the most? I don't know. Do you have any idea what you want me to talk on? I don't know. Is this an active church? Very active church. Very active in service. So I just went back to our room and I prayed. And God gave me this little tiny sheet outlined to some scripture references. And it was on the love of God. And as I began teaching... That topic was five nights in a row. Here's the most amazing thing. There were people in this big active church who were serving, quote unquote, the Lord, but they never understood God's love for them. They had never understood the intimate love that he was calling them into. And the head elder, who had been in the church for 40 years, was baptized after that revival series. My point is this. Today, we're, we're beginning a three-part series. I'm so excited. You know, John said he was going to be out of town. He asked if I would like to preach while he was gone. And I just got my release from the doctor to come back into a public setting. And so we're going to do a three-part series. This Sabbath, next, uh, the 23rd and the 30th. And this series is recognizing the call of God, receiving the call of God, and responding to the call of God. It's amazing how God leads when he's teaching you. Just a couple of months ago, I had prayed, and I was trying to explain surrender, and I said, Lord, I've been explaining surrender in the same way for years. Give me a new way to explain surrender. And just like that. God gave me three steps to surrender. The first is knowing God. 
You can't surrender to his love unless you know his love. You can't surrender to his infinite wisdom unless you know his infinite wisdom. And you can't surrender to his power unless you know his power. So you know what's interesting? I thought, oh, recognizing the call of God, it's that first step of surrender. You gotta know God. Then the second step God gave me was stop and submit. Stop resisting his love. Stop resisting his plan for your life. And submit to his authority. You know what? That corresponds perfectly with receiving his call. And the third step of surrender is to yield to the Holy Spirit. That is how we respond to the call. So today what we're going to do is begin with step one. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six. And we will begin with this first step of knowing God so that we can recognize his call. And I want to tell you, God's call is to everyone. God is calling everyone into relationship. God is calling you into even service, we all have different gifts, we all do different things, but God's call is on your life. So Isaiah chapter six, let's begin with verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, now let me tell you something, the death of the king and the rise of Assyria, oh my goodness, this created a time of great crisis. There was peril in Judah. Is there peril around us right now? So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah was a man of God. He was in the temple of God, but he's pressing into the presence of the Lord through prayer, and suddenly God expands his vision from the earthly temple to the heavenly temple, and he has an increased understanding of who God is. The robe is, is, is significant of his total power and authority that's filling the temple. And you know what? Suddenly, Isaiah realizes God is reminding him that no matter what happens with human rulers, no matter who is the president of the United States, no matter what is going on, God is still on his throne and he is still in control of the affairs of this world, amen? So Isaiah sees God high and exalted, just like Daniel and Ezekiel and Amos and John on the island of Patmos. They see God on his throne when the powers of darkness surround us, 
God invites us to take a closer look at him. To understand and draw near. And then he says in verse 2, Above it stood seraphim, above this throne. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his eyes or his face. He couldn't look upon the brilliance of the divine glory, these angels. With two he covered his feet and flew with two. That's a posture of submission when he was covering the feet. Verse 3, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This threefold declaration of God's perfection and holiness means he's completely separated from sin, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But all of his perfect attributes, all of his immeasurable glory, is all of his character is on display in creation. Verse 4, Isaiah 6, 4 says, The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. The Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the house. So now look at Isaiah's reaction. Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm undone from my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This was an increased vision, and I guarantee you one thing. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you're going to recognize the filthy rags that are your righteousness. You know, I heard someone say just last week, oh, I'm really growing. I'm close to sinless. And I said, I don't know what you're growing close to. But it's not my Lord, because the closer you draw to the brilliance of God's light, the more you see those spots and wrinkles in your garment. Verse 6, he says, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And the seraphim, the angel, says to Isaiah, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. See, God responded to Isaiah's personal confession of sin. And he had this angel touch his lips. This is, with the coal from the altar, it's figurative language. It's symbolizing the cleansing of God. But God is consecrating Isaiah to prepare him for a mission because God had a plan for Isaiah's life. Verse 8, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, now Isaiah is pressed into the presence of the Lord. He's seeing the vision of God. And he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. See, God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he is waiting for a response from Isaiah. A response that is more than just reverence and awe of God but a response that he's understanding the whole world is full of God's glory. He's seeing the angels, holy, 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 this sinless God. And Isaiah is, his love is just beginning to well within his heart. God is waiting for a response motivated by love. God's never gonna force you to do anything. He is looking to you, waiting for you to fall in love with him, and then you will recognize and respond to his call. See, Isaiah saw God in a completely different light. And not only was he in awe of God's glory and love, but he was humbled. He was completely submissive at this point, had total trust and appreciation for what the Lord had done. And his heart recognized that there were suffering people in the world who needed to know the love of God that he knew. It's just like Eric prayed today. Oh, Lord, I'm afraid for the people that I love that don't know you. He recognized God's call for help on earth, and without hesitancy, he wanted to receive that call, knowing that if he yielded to God's leading, that God would empower him to respond to the call. We have to first recognize the call before we can receive the call. We have to receive the, people receive the call and don't respond to the call. But it's all got to do with the steps of surrender. You've got to know God to recognize his call. You've got to stop and submit to his authority to receive the call. And you certainly have to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit to respond to the call. So let's look at what's going on in the church today. You know what? A.W. Tozer, a Christian writer, wrote, if the Holy Spirit were removed from the church today, 95% of what's going on would continue. However, if it had been, if the, he, the Holy Spirit, had been removed from the church of the New Testament times, 95% of what happened would stop. People would notice the difference. I don't know that we'd notice the difference today. Why? Because there's so few people that are truly surrendered. We don't allow God to be in charge of our conversation and our conduct. Some, some of us busy ourselves with Christian service. But 
I saw a recent survey of pastors, pastors, and 70% of those surveyed said they didn't really have a prayer life. What? How can you pastor if you don't have a prayer life? If you don't have a prayer life, you don't have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Because communication is the relationship. Some people feel defeated. They don't know where God is. Some feel like they've hit a wall, that there's a barrier between them and God. And there's a lot of lukewarm Christians in the Laodicean church that love the things of the world, and they're just flat apathetic about their spiritual condition. You know, I remember when, oh, back in nine, uh, 2002, somewhere around there, I felt like I had stopped in my progress with the Lord. And I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, you know, he taught me to exalt his word. He taught me to press into his presence with prayer. He had taught me how to surrender. But suddenly I realized all these wonderful things that he's showing me don't always happen in my life and daily activities. And it's like, Lord, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get to the next level? And God showed me, how many of you have ever prayed and you get a picture in your mind while you're praying? Anybody I got a hand up there? Thank you. I don't want you to. I was at one church and I said, and God gave me this little prayer vision and this lady came up to me afterwards and said, who do you think you are? Helen White? Okay. But it's, it happens a number of times when I'm praying that God will give me a picture in my mind. And what I saw was I was running and there were these huge steps leading up into the clouds. I was maybe up on the third or fourth step and as I'm running along, I'm looking back over my shoulder and suddenly I hit something and God, what God said to me was, I will soon explain to you the wall that you're hitting. Oh, it was like, yes, that's what's happening. I'm hitting a wall. And the wall was actually the step. It was the front of the next step. But just God saying that to me helped me. And it took weeks, maybe not more than two weeks. But I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, explain that wall to me. And finally one day he says, the wall that you are hitting that's keeping you from advancing is the wall of self-preservation. Do you know that's what's keeping you from advancing? You want to hold on to things in your life. We all do this. This is called the human condition, that we hold on to things in our lives that we won't surrender to God. Let me ask you this question right now. Ask yourself this question. What hinders me from total surrender? What hinders me Repeat after me. What hinders me 
from total surrender. Make that a prayer. Ask the Lord, what hinders me from total surrender, Lord? Identify it. Help me to give that up. You know, I had my own Isaiah moment as God was leading me through when I got pressing into his presence and I suddenly understood God a whole lot better than I had and I knew God was calling me to Christian ministry. And that's a whole nother story, but I quit resisting. I submitted, I committed, I followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, and God uses me in spite of all my shortcomings. So let's look at recognizing the call of God. How do you recognize the call of God? Well, you've got to know the Lord first. As I said, God is calling all of you into salvation. Now, what I'm going to share with you, you may have heard me share before, because we're going to lay a foundation. We're gonna talk about God's immeasurable love, his infinite wisdom, and we're going to talk about his power. But if you've heard these verses before, don't tune out. If you're tuning out, that shows that you're not ready to surrender. You know, we need to focus on, I mean, Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, Father, and that they may know me. When we fall in love with God, when we understand how much he loves us, and we, his love will awaken a love in us. We love him because he first loved us. So recognize and know his immeasurable love. God is love. That's what 1 John 4, 8 says. What does that mean? God is not loving. God is love. It is the essence of his being. He can't, and let me tell you something. Love is totally separate from sin. Love cannot sin. God is love. He is perfectly holy because his love separates him from sin. That's just what holiness means, to be separated from sin. You know when the Bible says God is a consuming fire. I used to read Hebrews and I'd get to that and I'd go, my knees would be knocking. And I'm thinking, oh, he is a consuming fire. His love consumes sin. That's why you and I can't, we can't stand in the presence. No human can stand in his presence without Christ's robe of righteousness because the brightness of his love, the holiness of God, we just go, we'd be vaporized. But this is something that we have to understand about God is that everything about God flows from the essence of his being, love. Even God's wrath is rooted, his holy wrath is rooted in his love. You know, sometimes people say, 
Oh, the God of the Old Testament was an angry, wrathful God. He's so different than the God of the New Testament, the God of love. I remember my mother, you know, we grew up in a, I grew up in a New Testament church, so we didn't really study the Old Testament. But my mother, being the brave soul she was, would do some personal study. For some reason, she was drawn to the book of Jeremiah. But she would read Jeremiah and be upset with God. She, she always said, the God of the Old Testament was mean and wrathful. And I grew up loving Jesus, but being afraid of the Father. Somehow, my image of the Father was like he was up there looking down, going to zap me any minute because I did something wrong. See, my mother read the Old Testament through the wrong lens. When I started studying, you know, Jeremiah prophesied for 40 years, telling these people, God says, if you don't straighten up, this is what's going to happen. If you don't straighten up, this is what's going to happen. Can you imagine if you had a child who was born and you reared them till they lived with you till you're 40 years and they never listened to a word you said? That's what was going on. These people were so rebellious. So, you know, I think about when God sent Jonah to Nineveh. <laughs> they heard the message once, and they repented. And God relented on what he was going to do to them. But his own covenant people didn't. What about us? Anyway, you look through, as I studied through the Old Testament, studied on the covenants, oh my goodness, I realized how generous, how patient, how kind God was. And when people say, oh, you don't find grace in the Old Testament, yes, you do. Oh, the word, my favorite Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And it's used 250 times in the Old Testament. You know what has said is? It's like wrapping agape love and grace all into one. It means loving kindness, patience, loyalty. It means generosity. It's steadfast love. It's grace. It's goodness. It's devotion. This is who our God was throughout the Old Testament. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with singing. Bonnie, is that how you see God? That he is rejoicing over you with singing? He will quiet you with his love. How precious. Do you see the heart of a loving heavenly father who has called us into relationship? He rejoices over us with singing. Hallelujah. God is totally separate from sin and he has a hatred for sin. 
But love is inherent in all he does. He set a penalty for sin. He requires the penalty of sin is death. But you know what? He paid the penalty that he requires. Hallelujah is right, my brother. John 15, 12 through 14, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man for another than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You know, that's the highest conceivable example. When you think about it, you've got a mother often will lay down her life for a child, step in front of an oncoming car. The Secret Service is trained to take a bullet for the president. Or a soldier may fall on a grenade to protect his unit. But God did much more than just taking a bullet. He did much more than falling on a grenade for us. He did much more than dying on a cross for us. Let me explain what I'm saying. We've got to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. His greatest sacrifice was that the second person of the Godhead came to earth and became one of us. Do you know what scholars call that? The humiliation of Christ. The second person of the Godhead stepped down. We know Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says that he was God. He came down. He humbled himself to take on the flesh of humans. And then he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. The second person of the Godhead became the person of Jesus Christ. He became the covenant son of God. And when you think about what he did to humble himself, to take on our flesh, because you know what he's done? What he has done is he was resurrected in that flesh. He told his disciples, here, touch my hands. See the nail scars. He ascended in that flesh, and the angel said, he will come back in that flesh. So the second person of the Godhead limited his physical, how can I say it? He limited his physical presence. That's why he can't, you know, he told the, the disciples when he was going back, and they're going, oh, don't leave us. He said, hey, it's better for you that I go away because then I can send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, let's look at, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Ephesians 3, verse 16. Because when you think about this, it is so hard to wrap your mind around the idea that our creator, God, the Bible says all things were created through Jesus. He is the creator, God. When it talks about begotten, God didn't birth him forth from his bosom. 
Begotten is a covenant term. Begotten is a term that is used once he got to, he- uh, to earth. In Hebrews 1, the Lord says, Today I have begotten thee. It's a covenant term for a unique sonship. But listen to this. Jesus can't be everywhere at once. He lives in our hearts by faith. It says Ephesians 3, 6. Paul's praying and he says, oh, I pray that you'll be strengthened with might. How? Through his spirit in your inner man. Do you know if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a child of God? If you're not led by the spirit, Romans 8, 14 says, only those who are led by the spirit are children of God. You ought to be praying every day. Oh, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Then he says, as the Holy Spirit's in us, he says that Christ may dwell dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. The person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the one we refer to as Father are all God. So when the Holy Spirit is in you, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father are in you. He dwells in our hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, are you rooted and grounded in love? You know, God's love is very practical. And and to recognize the call, you've got to understand his love. But then as you go on and receive and respond to his call, you can't respond to the call of God Unless the Holy Spirit's, and you will do this in the third, the third message. But it is, you can't respond to the call of God unless you're responding in his love. You know, I see people all the time who come to me, call, J.D. gets these calls. They've had my neighbor. I'm, I'm going to say, and I'm not, this isn't just in the Adventist church. It happens everywhere. But when we first moved into our house, our neighbor, after a few months of talking over the fence, he said, are you sure you're Seventh-day Adventist? And we were like, what? And what had happened is someone from an offshoot who said they were Seventh-day Adventists, had come into his place of business. And you know what they said? You're going to burn in hell because you go to church on the wrong day. You know what? We can't... We've got to minister like Jesus, don't we? We've got to love people, to meet their needs, and to quit... I loved what uh, John Bradshaw said on a live the other night. He said, get over yourself. You're not as important as you think you are. <laughs> Somebody had called in thinking, you know, that, oh, because of the vaccines, you know, my neighbors are doing this and that because I'm, I'm an anti-vaxxer. He said, get over yourself. See, God can do, the, he can finish the work without us. It's our privilege that he asks us to be a part of it. But he goes on and he says, if you're rooted and grounded in love, you'll know what's the width, 
That's, that's how it extends to all people. The length, how it extends to all time. The depth, how it extends. His love extends to the lowest conditions of the heart and the height of his love that extends to heaven. God came to earth to become one of us, to save us from the penalty of sin, to save us from the power of sin and eventually to save us from the presence of sin. Let me ask you, some people feel like if you mention the commandments that we're being legalistic. Do you realize God is a God of boundaries? He even gave boundaries to the ocean that said you can come this far and no further. But God gave us his Ten Commandments, because they're inside the ark, because they're the foundation of his government. His government operates by love. And the Ten Commandments are the commandments of love. The first four are love for God. The other six are love for one another. And these are boundaries for us that will have a path, a large path in which we can run and yet find freedom, a law of liberty, freedom from sin, freedom from that, that mistrust. And, and this gives you an idea, just listen. This gives you an idea why God gave us commandments. It's not because he's trying to Put a stop to all the fun in your life. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 48, 18. This is God speaking. And he said, oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. You follow my commandments, you're going to live in peace. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. He came. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Why wouldn't you trust a love like that? If you know God's love, you know you can trust God's love. And you, it's the first step to total surrender. But we've got to acknowledge his infinite wisdom. I get so tickled. Not tickled. Yeah, it's funny. You hear these astrophysicists. It's funny and it's sad. I shouldn't say, but you hear these astrophysicists, philosophers, these people who talk like what they know is so much more than the simplicity of the Christian God, the Hebrew and Christian God. They act like they've got it all figured out. You know, God said in Isaiah 55, 9, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's no scientist. There's no philosopher. There's no theologian who's ever going to figure out God. I mean, he is so, he's, it, we just got to trust him, lean not on our own understanding, but follow him and in all of our ways, he will direct our paths. He's a friend, not a foe. 
He says, I've got a plan for your life. It's a good plan. Oh, if you understand I've got a plan for your life, you will come and seek me. You will seek me with all your heart. You will find me. See, our problem is we don't seek God with all of our heart. You know why we don't understand? He's got the plan. There's so few people who are seeking him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as soon as, ching as soon as it, uh, it figures out in here, hey, God's the one that's got a good plan for my life, we'll be seeking him. His knowledge is infinite. Why wouldn't we trust his superior knowledge? And his power is exceedingly great. It's limitless. In Isaiah 46, God says this, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand. I will do all my pleasures. See, when we surrender to God, he's going to work out his perfect will in our life. He enables us to accomplish things we would never do without him. And we know that he is the maker of the heavens and the earth, and he's the one who made us. But if we don't understand his power, you know what happens? We get some crazy theology going on. Jesus said this. There's a lot of people that are mistaken in their beliefs, and here's what Jesus said in Mark 12, 24. The reason your thinking is convoluted, that's a paraphrase, but he says, your problem is, quote, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, with God, all things are possible. There's nothing that's impossible. Hebrews 1.3 says it is the word of his power that this is how he sustains the world. 1 Peter 1.3-5 says we are kept by that power through faith for salvation. God's power is transformative. It's when the Holy Spirit is residing in you that he leads you in sanctification, that he strengthens you. And Paul said to the Ephesians, he's praying for them, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Because to know him is to have eternal life. To know him is the first step of surrender. To know him is the first step to recognizing his call. And he goes on and he says, oh, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to to the working of his mighty power. God's power is yours if you surrender. Do you realize that? His extraordinary divine power by which he raised Christ from the dead 
is ours. And guess what? His power, we, would you say your sin nature is powerful? Oh, yeah. But you don't have to remain powerless to your sin nature. God can give you the victory. He says in 2 Peter 1, 3, 4, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him called us by his glory and virtue by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You got to recognize God's call before you can receive it and respond to it. It requires that first step of surrender. You've got to know God before you can receive his call. Do you understand that God's plan of salvation is total dependence upon him? Total. Jesus said in Luke 18, 17, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Children have no resources of their own. They just live in a state of trusting dependence upon their parent. We've got to abandon our pride. We've got to quit thinking, as one lady told Jim Gilley, when we were in Israel, this lady said, I'm ready to be translated. And Jim Gilley says, what do you mean? And she said, I eat a vegan diet. I don't wear makeup. I do this. I do that. We had traveled with her for a couple of weeks and knew her many challenges. I'll just put it that way. And she said, I'm ready to be translated. See, it is not grace plus your vegan diet that's going to save you. A healthy diet we need to promote because we need to be healthy vessels. But just because you eat turkey lurkey or whatever they call it, doesn't mean that you are any more a candidate for salvation than I. So what we've got to do is understand it's total dependence. That's why Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Why wouldn't you trust a power like that? If we can trust his love, trust his wisdom, trust his power, we're going to be like Isaiah. We're going to understand that we're going to have an increase in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We'll recognize his call. We'll stand in awe and reverence of his immeasurable love, his infinite wisdom, and his exceedingly great power. And like Isaiah, when we see the Lord high and lifted up and understand who he is and how much he loves us, we're going to recognize our own sinfulness 
And confession is the clearing house of the conscience. As we confess our sin, he will wash us. He will equip us. But in closing, you cannot recognize the call of God if you don't know God. You cannot receive the call of God until you stop resisting his love. Stop resisting his plan. You cannot respond to the call of God by your own power, by your own strength. God's call is to you today saying, come, Pam, be totally dependent upon me. I will fill you with my Holy Spirit, and I will lead you. Well, next week, we're going to look at stopping and submitting. That's October the 23rd. 23rd? The 23rd. And then on October the 30th, we'll look at our third step. My prayer for you today, and and I just have to share this. Uh, Of course, Ron Aguilar, who is the president of the Illinois Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, while he was here, we got to talking about surrender. And I said, can I tell you something brilliant that the Lord just dropped? And I give him all the glory. When I say brilliant, it's not my brilliance. I'm just saying, Lord, how do I explain surrender? And he says, you got to know me. You got to stop and submit. You got to yield. And I shared those three steps with him. And you know what he said? Do you realize You just summarized in three sentences the first three chapters of Steps to Christ. And I said, no, I didn't realize that. It's serious, folks. This isn't just something Shelley Quinn came up with. God wants you, he wants me to walk in total surrender. What's hindering us? Let's make that, that's your homework for this week till we meet next Sabbath. Ask the Lord. I'm going to do the same. Lord, what is hindering me from total surrender? Is it pride? Do I get off on thinking that I can do something for the Lord in my own power? Is it insecurity that I don't understand his love for me? Is there a lie from the past? Is there abuse? What is it that is hindering us? Maybe it's just a negative outlook that we are, you know, we're getting so consumed with the world that our eyes are not focused on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, but that we're just focused on what's going on in this earth. 
Whatever it is, will you make that a matter of prayer? Will you pray about it? And then we'll come together again, I hope, next Sabbath, the Lord willing. And look at once we recognize the call of God, how can we receive it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of Jesus. Lord, oh, don't let these be empty words. Father, I've just touched on your immeasurable love. I have just touched on your infinite knowledge and the exceedingly great, the exceeding greatness of your power. But Lord, I pray this week, open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to be like Isaiah, that we can see you high and lifted up and beckoning to us to draw closer. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that each one of us remind us every day by the Spirit to ask you, What's hindering us from total surrender? Oh, Lord, we want to recognize your call. We want to receive it and respond to it. And we know that you are anxious to empower us to do all of this. So we praise you and we thank you. We give you all the glory. And Lord, we're expecting something wonderful to happen in our lives because you are the God of hope and you fill our hearts to overflowing with hope by the power of your spirit. So Lord, put eager expectation into every heart and may we all keep us all safe, Lord, till we come again. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for the answer to the prayer of faith. Amen.